Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the midday keynote for the 2013 School Leadership Summit. We're almost halfway through the day. This has really been fun. We're really delighted that you're here to listen to Young Zhao. Young, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for being a part of our day. Thanks to the School Leadership Summit sponsors and supporters. This day would not have happened without the support of TCAL. They've been terrific partners in helping to make this happen. So thanks to TCAL, thanks to Wilson Consulting, the Asia Society, and Intel. And some special appreciation for our keynote sessions to uh, the Asia Society for um, advice, consulting, and the like. This is your chance to tell us where you're participating from. Look to the left of the map now. You should see some icons. You're looking for the star icon. It's the second one down. Double click on it and click on the map. It's fun to have you tell us in the chat the time, the temperature, and the like. I'm in Australia between Sydney and Melbourne and waiting for the day to actually warm up. Where are you? Tell us. Fun to see all of you. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening to the recording, thanks for taking the time. I'm going to turn it over to you now, Jan. All right. Uh, well, great. Thank you. It's good to see so many people. We see people from China, from New Zealand, and uh, Canada and the U.S. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, so, so this is. Uh, I'm happy to see that it's from the, the large number of participants in the online conference I've ever seen. It's over 100, and uh, so uh, it's great. So what I would like to really talk about today is, uh, is think about the, the definition of uh, uh, world-class education, because everybody wants a perfect education for their children and uh, children in different countries. And uh, we have been driven a lot recently by uh, test scores, especially international test scores, uh, to define uh, the quality of our education system. You know, the PISA is become one of them. And uh, I know many countries have uh, great aspirations to be the top uh, scoring countries, uh, like uh, Australia recently wants to become top, uh, I think, uh, enter the, the top five uh, league. And other studies like TIMS has been driving a, a lot of education reform agendas as well. But are there really good measures, or, or what are we talking about as good education? So for all of you, um, if you come to think about it, why do we even get education? What's the purpose of education? How do you know you have a good education? Uh, I typically do not really look at uh, those numbers very carefully. And, uh, and uh, what I, I look at is, uh, is the outcome of education of children. It's, uh, and uh, the most recently, I think uh, I'm, I'm worried about my own children. You know, just, uh, my, um, I have... Uh, uh, two children have a son who is uh, in college, actually he's back home now on spring break, and he's going to graduate uh, from the University of Chicago in about uh, uh, two months. So I'm asking, since he spent so much of my money, I'm trying to see if uh, he has got a world-class education. And my definition is this, is when he graduates, if he doesn't come back to uh, move into my basement, which actually I don't have one in Oregon, and that's a great education. I think many of you would agree that would be a good, def good definition of uh, 
being able to keep other people's children out of their basement would be the mission of all education. So I think uh, if we start with that, and what uh, can those test scores predict? Uh, can those test scores guarantee uh, any kind of outcomes? So that, that's uh, that's the kind of uh, this, uh, a question I would like to raise with all of you. And we also know right now in the U.S. we have. Uh, a big movement towards uh, implementing the common core standards and every day I, I see some new some new products services uh, trying to sell that as if the common core standards is going to guarantee my children uh, to stay out of my basement and uh, that's why we call it college and career readiness and I don't know how good a bet that is in Australia I know there's an Australian curriculum in New Zealand, you're trying to work on your national curriculum, national standards, and uh, uh, so is England working on that as well. So everybody's trying to perfect uh, this uh, system and making good bet about the knowledge and skills that our uh, children might need uh, in, uh, in, in trying to stay out of our basement. So here's some of the the, the, the scores. I'm, I'm going to really read some interesting questions for you to think about. You know, what defines a good education? This is from the most uh, recent uh, TIMS data, the third on the trend in international mathematics and science uh, study, and of 2011, which actually was released only a few months ago. I think end of 2012. Uh, if you look at some of the test scores, I picked uh, eighth grade math as an example. If you look at Korea, Korea is uh, number one, uh, 613, and Singapore got 611, and uh, you know Chinese Taipei or Taiwan 609, Hong Kong 586, and Japan 570. So these are countries that have done great in, in on this assessment. In this is eighth grade math scores, and uh, but if you look across them, I, I, I've noticed one thing that's in common. These are all Eastern Asian countries, and they are. They are what I call them the chopstick using countries. You know, if you use chopsticks, you score very well in mathematics. That's a good thing to think about. And below you have uh, the spoon using countries. You know, the spoons and forks. So the U.S., England, Australia. Uh, I was wondering actually if you switch uh, uh, the utensils you use, you might uh, improve your math scores. But that's uh, beyond the point. And then look at the next column, which is. Uh, Tim's normally asks questions about confidence. Means, uh, are you confident in your math? Are you, uh, are you? I mean, do you think you usually do well in mathematics, or do you value math? And so, some of the interesting questions you have. You look at uh, uh, Korea; it's uh, the number one, but only three percent of eighth graders are, are confident. In contrast, in Americans may be mathematically stupid in, uh, in terms of measuring scores, but uh, you got 24% of American students are confident. And the same as goes with England and Australia. So the spoon users for uh, students are, are very much uh, confident, and uh, while well, they're not really good in taking the tests. So that's the interesting contrast. And uh, this trend has existed for a long time, actually ever since there's major studies coming out there that countries score high, uh, students have lower confidence. So uh, does this mean basically that um, uh, our students, um, uh, when they are uh, too confident, they don't score well? Or does maybe the high scores destroy the confidence? So what, what do you like? What would you like to have? If you can't have everything, what does this mean? Which, by the way, I, I should point out that within a country, 
actually uh, the correlation is positive. That is, students with higher scores are uh, higher, have higher level of confidence and vice versa. Uh, this is not to say causality, and, but I think it does pose the interesting question about uh, perhaps in within the education system, uh, or within the educational culture, that is, uh, when it promotes, when it raises test scores, it might at the same time uh, decrease students' confidence in this, or vice versa. Again, we, we don't know. This is no causal relationship. Uh, but the, the interesting question, however, uh, we should ask is that if you can have only one of the other as a, as a national system, not within a system, is that would you want more confident students or would you want more higher test scores. What matters? I know in America, a lot of educational policymakers, I mean, to a certain degree, most of the Western countries have been talking about this, is that uh, uh, our students have lower math ability measured by test scores simply because they are uh, not, uh, they are too confident. So to improve our test scores, we need to make them less confident. And where did this confidence come from? Is basically they, they don't know how bad they are. So we need to make sure our students know how bad they are so they can learn and they would work harder to get their scores up. And, uh, and to make sure they know how bad they are, we bring in globally benchmark standards. We bring globally benchmarked uh, assessments. So to make sure our students know that they are not only worse than their neighbor, they're worse than kids in a thousand miles away in Japan or Hong Kong or Korea. And, but actually Asian cultures, have been worried about something else. They've been, after this data, for example, I picked some of, some of the uh, media response. And the Asian media responses have been very different uh, than the media responses in, in the West. Uh, for example, this is up to the, the TIMS results in 2012, and the, the data I just showed you. For example, in Japan, uh, they are concerned about enthusiasm for studying science was below the global average among Japanese second-year junior high students. And uh, the fourth graders' interest in arithmetic was also below the world average. And Western media uh, almost rarely mention about the, this kind of affective or emotional domain of students' interest, uh, confidence, and enthusiasm. In Singapore, we have the same problem. Talk about uh, in Singapore, students have to work on uh, the confidence in approaching the subjects of math and science. And uh, in Hong Kong, for example, Hong Kong was uh, uh, scored quite high in math, but also even higher in pearls, the, the, re the literacy assessment, reading. means basically almost, uh, the, the, I think, the, the, the top of the world uh, in terms of uh, of reading uh, scores uh, tied with Russia, uh, but uh, most of the students uh, are not interested in reading, actually. They're not motivated to read, and uh, actually their motivation to read ranks the bottom, is the, 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 the lower score. And so they're talking about uh, what, what do you like to have? And uh, this kind of uh, model, I mean, this is going a long, long way back. This 2003, as you can see, shows the same kind of, uh, uh, of uh, negative correlation between uh, confidence and enjoyment and test scores. That is, uh, uh, globally speaking, countries with higher scores uh, you know, in, in math or actually in TIMS in general uh, have lower uh, confidence and lower enjoyment among their students. And then you have uh, the... PISA, PISA is another assessment which we've been talking a lot about, and uh, Finland has uh, 
traditionally scored very high uh, in, in terms of their uh, PISA scores in science. And actually, until China, until Shanghai came along in 2009, Finland was uh, the top scorers in, uh, in science, in math, and literacy in different domains. You know. and, uh, but this is uh, from a Finnish document, a government document. And I want you to read this. It says that, uh, but when asked about their personal interest in different areas and aspects of science, Finnish students expressed less interest than their peers in most of the other OECD countries. And uh, in fact, across the countries, the correlation between students' attitudes and attainment was negative. That again means uh, higher scores and uh, less positive attitudes towards science. And uh, this basically means that students from relatively low-performing countries express the highest interest in science. And so the Finns were worried, and they said that Finnish students' relative lack of interest in science can be seen as a serious warning for the future Finnish economy. And uh, so this, this is something uh, for you to, to ponder on the PISA. And again, on the PISA uh, scores, and uh, talk about uh, the simplest and possibly most surprising finding is that many countries with the highest mean PISA science scores were at the bottom of the list of students interested in science. And uh, in Finland and Japan are prime examples. At the top uh, um, PISA science score, but at the very bottom on constructs like interest in science, future-oriented motivation learning sciences, as well as on future science jobs. You know, that is the inclination to see themselves as scientists in future studies and careers. And uh, so th this is all this negative correlation happening over there. And I then constructed uh, another set of uh, correlation analysis for my, my book, uh, which I'll mention later on. Let's talk about uh, how does PISA scores uh, 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 associate or correlate with uh, uh, entrepreneur activities. Because we know in the 21st century, we want to cultivate entrepreneurs. We want people who are not able, you know, if they have to come back to stay in the basement, we want them to create jobs and not to find jobs so they can stay out of, uh, you know, their parents or other people's basement or cellars, which depend on which country you're in. And so we have this uh, red bar indicating countries uh, in terms of rankings of math. And uh, you can see Singapore is number one, and towards uh, uh, Korea. By the way, these are only the developed countries. Uh, and so, then the blue bar uh, indicates uh, their perceived entrepreneur capability of capabilities of citizens in that country. And that means, uh, do they believe they have the capacity to start business, to create jobs, to create enterprises? I think so they don't go together, and they are quite negative uh, uh, again. And then I, I did some more analysis. This is, by the way, data from uh, uh, PISA as well as Global Entrepreneurship Monitor. And you can see the PISA math, reading, and science uh, are all significantly uh, correlated negatively with uh, entrepreneurial capabilities, with uh, uh, entrepreneurship startup rate, with new business ownership rate, and the total earning stage entrepreneur activities. So all of this says that um, the, the measures we used to measure education outcomes, to view them as the best education systems uh, uh, in terms of uh, test scores do not result in the same kind of things we might value otherwise, entrepreneur capabilities, uh, uh, confidence, enjoyment. So what now? 
what does this all of this mean basically so I would like to uh, since this is very hard for me to to gauge to say whether even you're listening or you're taking a nap or you're sleeping I'm going to stop there to ask you to to to, to type some uh, in, in, in the chat somewhere to type some questions so I can I can all responses so, so what do you think I will, I would like to say some opinions here and all questions and before I move on to to talk more about uh, uh, today you know and I'm going to make a suggestion. It's hard to follow the chat when it's in a small box. To the top right of the chat mm -hmm. box is a drop-down, and you can detach the panel, or you can double-click and pull the chat out and elongate it if it's been hard for you to watch the chat. Uh, anyway, actually, if you have a question, raise your hand, right? I think, uh, Steve, if you want to moderate some questions, because there's a, I just present a bunch of data out there and uh, which means that right now many people are already, uh, at least governments, uh, trying to uh, perfect the education system following the international assessment scores as if they define what good education is. And I'm raising the other set of questions and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Yes, we've had a couple of questions come in. But Kathy, Catherine Davis says, I joined late, may have missed it, but how do you measure perceived entrepreneurship? Uh, that's a, <coughs> that data comes from a global entrepreneurship monitor. If you search online, you can find it. It's from the Babson College, who is uh, it's uh, traces some 50 some countries and they do surveys over there. And one of the questions asked is about uh, perceived entrepreneurial capabilities. I mean, do you believe, uh, for example, you have the capacity uh, to start a business? Sharon wants to know who gets educated in the chopstick countries. Well, Steve, I think they, 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 all the chopstick countries actually, uh, at least for nine years at least, it's a compulsory education. That is everybody. And the selection, the sorting mechanism may begin uh, after ninth grade. I mean, they were sorted in many ways into different types of schools, but uh, the education is actually indeed everybody. Rob wants to know, is low math achievement causally related to entrepreneurship capacity? Can't we be successful on both? Uh, no, they are not causal at all. I, I think all of this, what I, I've, come, I've been able to come out with is I couldn't, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's going to be very hard to justify a causal relationship at all. I'm, what I'm pre uh, presenting here is really about a negative correlation. You can explain the relationship in different ways. You know, one is that we can call it, uh, they the, the change together. I mean, both, it means that high scores does not necessarily have to cause low uh, confidence or low confidence causes the other and they can be responding to let's say one type of education for example if the, you know, one type of education that may improve your test scores uh, but at the same time can decrease your confidence and uh, uh, so they're not necessarily causal together uh, for example I think they you know I have some explanations which I'll present later uh, that's today I, I want to talk about a different paradigm so, so I'll explain that in a little bit Okay, we've got a lot of questions flowing in. Um, how does the individual teacher in the classroom use this information to battle against the standardized test agenda being laid on them? 
Well, I think that's that's the exact a great question. The, the great question I think is as a teacher, uh, a, a lot of times uh, teachers and education leaders we have been uh, asked to to improve our schools, to make our schools more effective, our teaching more effective. But what I'm today hope to raise the question about make ourselves uh, make us effective in doing what? You know, we've been learning a lot about how, but without thinking about you know the the why and to what and to what uh, you know outcome. We're trying to measure, and I want also bring the idea of a caution that uh, there may be costs. You know, once one type of teaching or one type of education, well, it may raise your indicators or improve your 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 education measure in one way, but could cause uh, side effects in, in other aspects. Like, uh, I mean, you, you are if you are a teacher, you know this very well, and I'm very aware of this. Some uh, reading programs, for example, they could improve your children's reading test scores, but they could cause them to hate reading forever, you know, those things. So that's why I'm actually uh, suggesting every teacher request requiring uh, every product, every policy in education to come with a warning label, you know, like when you buy medicine, you know, when you buy Tylenol, you should, uh, you know, it causes drowsiness, you know, if you take that. I think you should, we should warn people that, you know, this uh, common core, for example, should come down, yes, we, we can all teach to the common core, but it could uh, mean that we narrow the curriculum and we don't get to teach, uh, uh, you know, music and art. We could be, while we're trying to close the achievement gap, we might be widening the education gap for more people. So I think as teachers, uh, this data at least helps us to raise awareness to say, okay, when we try to go after something, we might lose something else. It's, uh, well, I have about 10 more questions. How many more do you want? Uh, well, take another three, and then I'll move on. So is there a connection between education and entrepreneurship, or is entrepreneurship more res the result of social and uh, economic policy? Well, I think the, uh, the entrepreneurship activities, the activities uh, are, are related a lot more to, uh, to uh, economic policy, to the uh, social context. Uh, however, I think the capability has a lot to do with how we're educated. There were a couple of questions um, about the correlation between, um, sorry, it says Australia and Belgium seem to have the best correlation. Is that correct? Uh, looks like so, yes. This is just one, one year of data. Uh, if you want to say more of the data and the, the more in-depth analysis, I'll be happy to uh, refer you to to my book or several articles I wrote in my blog. Take one more question, then I'll move on. Okay, this is from one more from Edward. Would you hypothesize that rigid educational structures limit agile thinking and adaptability? Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think that that's uh, that's what uh, I'm going to. Then that's a great uh, segue to the next uh, to the next uh, slide, the next segment of my presentation today. Uh, so I'm going to. So what I've done is hypothesized uh, a different paradigms. So this is what I call our traditional and current educational paradigm. You know, we start by defining uh, what uh, skills and knowledge our children will need when they graduate so they can become uh, either employable or they can become, you know, what we call contributing citizens. So all educational systems right now, or schools for, for that matter, uh, often begin by defining 
uh, the outcomes. So this and uh, government leaders and school principals and, and people love this thing. You know, parents even like to to do you know to have this thing. We won't know it after 12 years or, or 20 years what my children are able to do and know already. So we start with that, and then we are making good bet. We we assume the knowledge and skills we prescribed or defined are of value. It's a, it's like making a good bet. It's basically if you did this. I will promise you a better life. So this is what the Common Core is doing in the U.S. and other national curriculum. We're promising that uh, if you master what I give you, you'll be great. And then schools uh, are, are given the task of transmitting uh, effectively of that. Then we parse it into a grid level expectations and we parse that into gateways in the, at the different uh, case stages. You must master this. And we make the assumption that all students, uh, regardless of their individual differences, the backgrounds, uh, can and should achieve this. And if they didn't, it's either because they didn't work hard enough, or the parents didn't care, or the teachers didn't, are not good enough to do this. So that's what we are we're trying to do this. And in this process, we, we basically, since we don't care about uh, who you are, the backgrounds, and then we, we turn you into employable people or contributing citizens. If you look at this, this paradigm, it's very much not what I call like a sausage making, you know. You may be a, you may make, make a great piece of steak, you know, but uh, I, I don't like steak. I'm, I think uh, sausage will sell better, so I'm going to turn into uh, a sausage. You know, you may uh, by yourself be broccoli, you know, which tastes good by itself, but now we don't like it, want to turn into sausage. So we try to narrow everybody and turn into the same kind of sausages. But of course, you know, we, we have different kind of sausages. You have the, the Harvard, the Stanford type of sausage. Then you have the community college sausage. Then you have the, the dropout, you know, high school dropout sausage. This is what we, we try to do in the traditional paradigm. And then American schools do this, Australian schools do this. And when the result, of course, if we come to an agreement with commonly uh, uh, definable uh, uh, outcomes, we can measure that. I think the PISA, Teams, all of the international assessment measures this outcome. And we automatically assume PISA measures, for example, uh, the ability to survive in 21st century of 15-year-olds. And then, however, while all schools strive to do this, while all educational systems strive to become good sausage makers, and there are differences. Some countries do a better job at uh, making sausage than other systems. And so uh, the question just now mentioned about you know, a rigid system. So if you look at the Asian, the, the chopstick countries, you know, I'm, I'm going to use that as an example, they have more uh, clearly defined uh, standards, at least until uh, No Child Behind comes on. It's a very dictatorial, authoritarian system, and they have a narrow curriculum, and the teachers were trained uh, to do that, and there's assessment uh, all, along the way all the time to remind people how far away uh, you are from the goals. And then there's also uh, uh, um, ranking systems to make sure that uh, you know uh, you know your position, so so, so that you know how, how much worse or better you are than other people. And then we, there's also reward and sorting mechanism, which uh, we admire in the U.S. Uh, Western countries called meritocracy. That is, uh, those who score better are rewarded with a better position in a different school, better schools. Uh, sometimes they're, they're even rewarded with better seating in the classroom. And uh, those who don't do well are punished all the time. So everybody is reminded every day that they have to master the skills. But in the process, what you have, in essence, is that uh, you will have people 
who, as I said, you know, who may become a, who may be a broccoli, but uh, now is your trend treat him as a sausage. Then he would make a horrible sausage. Those kids will be either kicked out of the system and then or, or put down into a different school, and they will lose confidence. But more importantly, if they're out of the system somehow, then you drive the average scores up, you know, because those bad ones are not in the system anymore or, or in other places. So, so that, 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 that's one of the things. We re- and then you, when you lose the confidence, and uh, you, you will know you can never be better because it's a ranking system. Ranking system, only one person is the best, you know, and the rest are all worse than the first one. You know? So that, that's when you, you always feel like you are inadequate in doing anything. And all your other talents, you may be talented in, let's say, music, in art, or something. Something. But since you don't do well in this domain, those other things don't really matter. You know, they, they don't matter. We don't value them. We only value what's been prescribed and what's been assessed. So in this way, you, you basically produce less confident people, and you, you, you produce more homogeneous talents, and uh, that will drive up your scores, and, but uh, you may not have something uh, uh, much of anything else. So this is the traditional paradigm. The traditional paradigm was, uh, honestly, was very useful and, and uh, powerful in the economy when you require uh, homogeneous talents, people who know similar things, people have similar skills. You know, imagine uh, you work in an in in, in agriculture society, like, uh, like my little village in China, in my village, you know, and not much, uh, you know, nothing else actually really matters than your ability to farm, to drive the water buffalo, to plow the field, to carry uh, sweet potatoes. So th- those are the skills. But you know, even if you were a, a Beyonce, even if you were a Justin Bieber, you wouldn't be of much use in the village because those talents were were not valid. We couldn't support that. And uh, then also that the same thing happens in the in the industrial age. You know, if you all work on assembly line, we were requiring people more obedient, compliant, homogeneous, mediocre people. Uh, who will learn only to be good enough and the, the skills and knowledge, and you can prescribe that. You know, all of those things actually work very well. And uh, for most of you know human history, creativity is actually not a good thing. It's uh, it's uh, it, it's it causes trouble. You know, for uh, uh, most author, authoritarian, dictatorial you know uh, leaders, uh, it causes trouble. You know, all, all the time. So so for a long time, we never really need to value confidence. We can care less about your creativity as long as we have a few people who normally either uh, survived schools or, or succeeded despite of schooling, you know, like Thomas Edison, like Henry Ford, all those guys, uh, a few of them uh, could create new industries that employed a lot of people who are drones. You know, the, the, so, so the old model actually worked very well, and they worked best. They were perfected in Asian countries, Eastern Asian countries, particularly like China. This model is no different from uh, the emperor's uh, exam, the Kyrgyz exam, that started about you know uh, 600, uh, so somewhere about 1300 years ago, or about you can trace back almost 2,000 years. The emperor says, okay, I want people who can pass my test, and my test is going to be about Confucian classics. And uh, the Confucian classics may have nothing to do for you. I mean, at practical value and necessarily, but if you take the test. You pass my exam, you're rewarded with a government position with a comfortable life, uh, you know, a comfortable life forever. And so people would go after that, so they learn to be compliant, to be homogeneous. Those who can do are either uh, out of the system or they are basically you know, just, uh, you know, will remain uh, unrewarded all, all the time. So the whole Asian system have this culture of people developing the strategies to cope with the dictatorial demand 
that wants everybody to become a sausage. So they're very good. I mean, they are the best sausage making machines. So, but American education, in many ways, American Western style education, we are not a good sausage maker, and uh, we we have not been. And in the U.S., for example, you, you know, we have uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Larry Katz and Lillian and Gordon out of Harvard, who wrote a book called "The Race Between Technology and Education." They identified some six uh, you know virtues of American education that include public edu- public funding, public provision. And uh, in a separation of church and state, and uh, gender neutral. But the two most important virtues they identified, I think, actually explains why Americans are sausage making machine, an imperfect sausage making machine, but uh, that makes some bacon. That's what I, I would say. The, the uh, creative entrepreneur people. If you look at uh, the two other virtues, one is called a decentralized uh, a system with a lot of local control. The, so America as a nation, we have. Uh, tens of thousands of local school districts until very recently, right until probably, you know, uh, Daddy Bush came along and we had uh, many districts had a lot more control of their curriculum, of what they want to offer, what they think they want to teach, uh, despite the fact that many schools may be offering the same thing, and, but they did not have a national mandate. So that means uh, schools could have their unique local features. That means that uh, the, the students in the U.S. cannot, as a group, homogeneously do very well on testing because they have different expectations that teach different and teachers have more control within their classroom and that uh, that's the the negative side is they cannot make the same sausage and they are just have different tools but at the same time they could enable different people to thrive in different ways you know some schools taking pride in becoming uh, the great at sports some good at music some good at art and and typically schools offered a broader curriculum so allow students to at least find one place that could be good they don't have to be good in the same way i just look at american schools you know uh, school talent shows you know we, you know you some people you know if you use the common core standards you would barely name them talent shows you know you would name them i don't know whatever uh, that that that, that thing is, but we consider everything to be talent, everything, you know, from uh, taekwondo to music to art, and uh, actually we don't consider uh, math calculation as talent on those talent shows, but maybe if the, if the common core is uh, it's become uh, so prevalent, so successfully implemented, all school talent shows will become uh, kids uh, uh, throwing math scores at each other, that could be fun, and, uh, but anyway, so, so the, that's one thing, is that we have the locally controlled, uh, teacher defined, so allowing individuals to possibly find somewhere that they could be great, and again, this is until uh, no child behind. The other thing has to do with that, if you have a, a paradigm, a good sausage making machine, is that it measures how successful you are uh, in terms of getting close to the expectation. And that also means that you have to demonstrate uh, your ability by answering questions, not by asking questions, you know. So your ability to find answers prescribed in the standards become much more important than your ability to ask questions, you know. So that's why and so in the tests, no matter what kind of test, honestly, as I standardized testing, most of the time has more to do with you finding answers 
It's not about asking questions. We seldom ask students to, to measure students' ability to ask questions. We don't do that. We will measure them how, how you find answers, you know. Whatever in the open-ended it is, we are still demanding students to comply, to come close to what we expect of them. It's not about originality, you know, just, uh, uh, well, nobody in standardized testing talk about uh, uh, what if we come up with an iPhone. We don't ask those questions. So the second uh, virtue uh, that I think is valuable is say American education is uh, uh, is a second chance system. is an open and forgiving, open and forgiving system. That is, we allow a second chances. We allow for a lot of opportunities for to forgive. Uh, the youthful transgressions of our students. If you fail elementary school, if you don't do well in elementary, we still give you a chance to go to equal opportunity to get to secondary school. If you fail high school, we even have a TED waiting for you. Those opportunities, allowing people to explore what they're not good at, that's pretty cool. You know, that, that's very important. Allowing people to identify their passion. Because in a system, that is, if, you know, we can force, like Asian system demonstrate, Everybody to be good test takers, to, because it's just memorization. You know, we believe if you spend enough time, you can memorize it, you can pass tests. We can force you to become mediocre, but to become greatly entrepreneurial and creative, you have to be passion driven. You know, I, you can force me to learn how to paint, but you cannot force me to become a Picasso, even, no matter how hard I try. So that, that's, that's what I think is uh, the, 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 the kind of things. Right now, all the education reforms trying to uh, right now, I mean, with the Common Core, I mean, not other national uh, assessment programs, all of those things, we're trying to, in essence, to perfect this old paradigm. We're trying to uh, become a perfect sausage maker as others. And this, again, is not wrong. If America was trying this 100 years ago, I might even endorse it. I say, well, that's great. Let's do it. And, uh, however, we have entered a new economy. The new economy is the economy that... Uh, as you are, all of you are aware, and many people have written about it, machines, automation have taken many jobs away. The traditionally homogenous, uh, traditional jobs that require similar skills, mediocre jobs, uh, are gone, either taken over by machines or outsourced to other places. So America needs the new middle class. And today, the new innovations, for example, like uh, Facebook, does not need factory workers. New create creativity people come up with new ideas that employ very few people. And uh, so what I would argue that we are in a new economy, we need a new middle class. The new middle class, the manufacturing uh, workers, the traditional middle class are gone. The new middle class will have to become uh, uh, the creative class, and, uh, or, or Daniel Pink called the right-brainers, the, the talents that traditionally are overlooked, are undervalued, are become important. So my, my, my kind of conclusion is that uh, uh, creativity used to be something nice to have, as long as it don't cause too much trouble. Today, creativity becomes a necessity, an economical necessity. Everybody, if you want to become middle class, you have to become creative and entrepreneurial. And there are no jobs to be found until you create some. And also in the age of globalization, the developed countries, like in the U.S., we spend a lot more money than many, many other countries. We shouldn't try to compete for jobs with the Chinese or Indians or Africans because we, we already spend over $100,000 by the time you graduate from college. And the Chinese may have spent only $10,000. $100,000 should buy talents who will create opportunities for other people, not trying to take away what other people may desire. So we have the moral obligation to become creative, entrepreneur, and uh, as well. So what this means is that um, 
I would think we are at that juncture that we will need everyone to be creative. But how do you become creative? This is the model, a different paradigm, I would say. So I call, we have a different paradigm of education. I would call this is the entrepreneur-oriented education. The old one is called, I call, employee-oriented education. We were preparing employees to follow orders, to follow directions, to become similar with others, to become homogenized. And the new one, I would say that uh, it's a new model. The new model is that we want to, uh, our education to start with a child, not start with a prescribed uh, uh, content. We, we do not assess if a child has met someone else's expectation or how well has he traveled other people's prescribed path. Uh, instead, we start with individual differences. We start with uh, their, their, their culture uh, uh, strength. We start from that. That, that is the, 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 the construction. So in this new model, education is to enhance everyone's talent. If you can make everyone uniquely great, and we, they will stay out of our basement. And uh, that's the challenge. This is the paradigm shift is very hard to move. And uh, because we like to be able to measure a group of people, we like to say how well everybody travels along in you know, the, the, the race course instead of trying to uh, look at the individuals. See, in this new model, I would say education is about enhancing strength of individuals, not a forcing upon the same set of expectations of everyone. This is not a fixed deficit. It's not to say, okay, you, you are so far away from this expectation, therefore I need to fix you. No, you need to uh, focus on individual talents. And how, how do we actually do this then? And I have some uh, models I would call this is a triad model. And the first level is about the schools deal with what? We don't debate about how good the curriculum is. We try to personalize education but enhance individual talents. Uh, we allow students voice and choice in the governance, in constructing a new environment. And then we move on to engage students in making things, in creating things. Today with technology, and technology is a great creation tool, but it's been misused very often in schools as a tool for consumption, for example. I think to this, you know, like all this video, writing, all those things, they're, they're really great technology to enable children to make and create authentic products for other people, and as well as global, globally connected. So this education should happen in schools as a global campus, not in a confined, you know, a classroom or, or, or you know, on one school. To their students, again, with technology and globalization, we should learn to help identify others, people in other countries, other schools, as resources. You know, if you are teaching uh, some courses, you want to teach some course and something that you, you don't have uh, access locally, and bring expertise from other countries. Or you can learn to become partners, you know, to learn how to find collaborators from other places. It's, uh, and all try to uh, find uh, the need. If you want to become entrepreneurial, you can become, uh, you, you need to learn about opportunities. Identify other people, other children, or other countries, like in Africa, what they need, and then use your knowledge or learn to create products and services that might help them. So I call this uh, the three uh, elements of the new entrepreneurship-oriented education. You know, the what is got a lot more student autonomy, personalized education, the how it's become product-oriented learning, which is a version of project-based learning, but uh, you know, emphasis on uh, authenticity of the product, emphasis on the, uh, on the magnitude, how significant the product is, emphasis on disciplined uh, the creativity, 
and sustained a process of revision and to become great. So that's the, the three models and the, and the three elements of this. And if you're interested, you can read more from, again, in, in the book and other places. So I want to end uh, with two examples of, of what I'm trying to do. Uh, at University of Oregon, I'm launching a project called OBA. Uh, and it doesn't really mean much, you know, OBA basically is three letters of the word global. So we call it the heart of global. Also, it's a nice uh, word that's pronounceable in every language without messing it up. So the, the system, uh, there's obaworld.net is K-12 site. And uh, this is a closed site to, you know, to uh, make sure we protect our children uh, in, uh, comply with the FERPA and COPA, and we're charging $1 per student per year. Uh, so what it is, it's a cloud-based uh, uh, learning platform, and very much like Moodle, but I added a uh, more portfolio um, assessment, portfolio construction, and social networking, and also synchronous video conferencing. Um, but those are not interesting, and those technology platforms are everywhere. Uh, but what's interesting is I'm trying to uh, get schools to sign on from different countries. So what it enables is that students can create pages, create courses, teachers can create courses, schools can create courses for their own students, for their, uh, for, but also at the same time, they can market those courses to other schools within the system in other countries. So if you are a school in China, you can be, your students could be creating a Mandarin course and then offer it to students in Africa. Or if you're in the U.S., your students could be running a math tutoring lesson for students in South America. Uh, also, if your students could be creating uh, English textbooks, for personalized English textbooks for students in Japan and vice versa. So the whole idea is to enable students in making things, making things that have authentic audience. Also enable schools to expand the course offerings to, uh, to other countries and also bring course or, or courses from other places. So this is trying to encourage the creative and entrepreneurial activities that capitalizes on local unique strength of students, teachers, and schools. If you want to play with this, you can get on. This is closed. There is a version that is not uh, a closed. Anyone can play. It's free. It's called obaverse.net. You can play with this thing. And uh, you, if you, this is free, okay, and uh, Overword is uh, is not free. It's $1 per student per year, okay, that's what we're charging. I'm trying to make it so cheap that no one can say it's too expensive, okay. Then the other one, a program I'm trying to run is more uh, faculty, develop, uh, faculty development. This is a master's uh, uh, program I call Global Educational Leadership. Uh, and I'm trying to implement what I, I preach. So this one is I want to participants in this system, in this uh, program will be from different countries. School leaders, teachers, or aspiring leaders uh, will become uh, the, uh, students in the master's program. And every student is going to create a major product or service that they will find meaningful, useful, therefore it's authentic. And also, I want to use this platform, we actually use an OPA to do this, to enable school leaders to build a global a partnership and a, a, a collegiality, colleagues with friends, as friends from different countries. So if you enroll in the program, you automatically have your friends from different places. It's mostly online. We have a two to three week study abroad, which students would choose one destination we spend about three, two to three weeks together to examine an educational system. So the idea is to cultivate 
entrepreneur school leaders would view their schools as global enterprises, would identify partners, identify uh, uh, consumers from other countries, but also at the same time to automatically view our schools as an entity that's global, that's globally connected for our students and our faculty. So this is, uh, you can find that on, on my website, a, a brief description, and it's through University of Oregon. And by the way, to brag a little bit, I really don't like rankings, but we are top ranking the college education, and we're offering huge discount as a first cohort and managing this right now. And you can apply, we are, we are going to decide what to do by June 1 in the applications. So then, uh, let me, see, the slides I use are selected from a, a stack of slides I've uploaded on my website. And uh, you, can, you can find many, many slides. I, I use this lot more economical data on my list. Or if you're interested in, you can uh, uh, get a copy of my book, which describes a lot more about the paradigm and explains the uh, relationship between PISA and entrepreneurship and the value and necessity of creativity and the entrepreneur spirit, as well as uh, examples of schools and programs have implemented a part of what I proposed as a new paradigm. So this is the book and get on Amazon other places. And again, the, uh, my website, uh, Twitter, and Facebook, and email if you would like to stay in touch with me. I think I want to leave some time for more questions and response. Uh, thank you. So if you have a question for Yong, you can raise your virtual hand. It's the third icon over in the participant window. Looks like a hand if you hover over the hand. Okay, it looks like Roland's going to ask the first question. Oh, maybe not. You can also put a question in the chat. There were so many questions that flew by that I'm sorry, I can't get track of them well. But I do have some previous ones from earlier when, uh, when I was keeping track, and I'll move to those if we don't get a, an active question here. We don't have questions. Oh, we have one. Tia, Tia is raising. I'm not seeing a raised hand, but Tia, if you do have a question, I'm glad to give you the microphone. Just click on the talk button at the top left of your screen. Uh, okay, go ahead. Okay, so Nguyen, Nguyen, I've given you microphone privileges. Just click on talk at the top left of your screen. Okay, thank you. Um, you asked a question regarding the soft skills that we were talking about with, uh, um, and also another report for century skills, collaboration, creativity, and so forth. Um, how would those be applied in terms of entrepreneurship? I guess my question is how would they be measured if they were to be uh, a part of the entrepreneur um, um, concept that we're creating? I hope you can hear my question okay. I think I heard part of it. Uh, Steve, uh, did you hear most of it? Could you rephrase? I think the question was about soft skills and uh, how they would be. Oh, soft skills. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm uh, really, uh, and like, uh, I, I talk a lot in the book, I write about, you know, the, uh, there are there is a slide I did not put up there. The really entrepreneurship uh, skills is in essence uh, a set of uh, um, 
soft skills is a spirit. So there are definitely hard skills like people talk about, you know, computation, financial management. But most importantly, uh, I'm talking about uh, confidence. I'm talking about social capital or social skills. Talk about risk-taking uh, spirit. Uh, talk about a lot of different things. And also, I talk about your unique proposition of your abilities. So uh, entrepreneurship or creativity is more of a human element that is uh, very easily overlooked and seldom actually never measured in, 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 uh, in, in our schools. We focus too much on the cognitive abilities and knowledge, but not on the um, emotional, uh, on the um, uh, affective domain. And those may become actually a lot more important. Another thing I want, uh, I want to add to this is that I want to emphasize uniqueness because right now we have uh, different kind of proposals from different countries. Uh, this will teach everybody everything. You know, the U.S., for example, 21st century skill, partnership skills. If you look at the, their prescription from core curriculum to foundation, to all kind of knowledge, uh, it's almost impossible. I think in the 21st century, we need to think about hyper-specialization, the different different economy. Identify what you're good at and what you're not good at and uh, be great in what you're good at, uh, not necessarily uh, be, uh, trying to compensate what you're not good at. Donna Joy wants to know about uh, whether poverty is taken into consideration for any of this data. Uh, well, no, no, not, not in, in this regard. I think poverty is not, and that, that's actually a, a great question to think about. You know, I have some side comments in regard to that. Is uh, is today? I think by by trying to think, uh, people in poor places need the most basics first. That's actually depriving them of the opportunity to become more creative and entrepreneurial, uh, because we are depriving them of the vast possibilities of trying to do something uh, better uh, than just giving them the so-called basics. You know, uh, you know, even using U.S. as an example, uh, No Child Left Behind, as we just wrote a book, uh, a chapter of a book about uh, education opportunities. You know, by uh, forcing children to meet the demands in literacy and reading, many schools had to narrow their curriculum and therefore eliminate opportunities such as uh, math and such as music and art and sports and recess. And actually, uh, opportunities like uh, music, arts, and sports, they are much harder to come by for poor people. And so maybe public schools may be the only place to offer those things. Now we've got rid of them, and the poor families are actually are further disadvantaged. And the same applies to foreign languages, field trips, all those things. OBA, as someone is asking, OBA is now founded by the University of Oregon. We try to make it a membership organization. We're a very, very small team, actually. It's, uh, it's me and uh, three computer programmers, and we have one person assistant. If we are trying to make it a social movement. We would love to, if we have any students who is interested in leading and helping with us, we would love it. We want to get people involved in this, this whole thing. Uh, so we are looking for entrepreneurial, creative people we're getting down to what have to be the last questions. Lashpoints wants to know, why do you emphasize preparation for the economy as the major purpose of education? Uh, I emphasize that only because uh, that's now the, the major 
uh, driving of any education reform discourse because government and business people always talk about economics. Uh, I don't really quite believe in that. In the, like in my book, I talk a lot about uh, uh, social entrepreneurs, policy entrepreneurs, and the creative people. Economy, uh, I actually don't believe it should be the major driver of education, but it's been the driver for educational discourse. So I'm using this more as a to counter directly some of the dominant educational policy conversations. So I have to emphasize this. Okay, maybe time for one more question. If you've got a question, you can put it in the chat. I will apologize if I've missed the question that was already there. Please feel free to post it again. Or you can raise your virtual hand. It's the third icon over in the participant window. Yeah, I'm going to echo what Donna Joy is saying. This has been a great session. Brenda says, this information is extremely valuable. I feel that way every time I hear you speak, John. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I, uh, thanks, to you for putting this together. I enjoy talking to everyone, even though I would feel like I was just talking to you. Uh, and maybe some of you will see each other, so that at BLC and other places. And thank you. And uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. Perfect to have you here. We have sessions that start at the top of the hour. Please feel free to go to schoolleadershipsummit.com. Check out the schedule for the next hour. Thanks to Young. Thanks to all of you. Bye, Young. Bye.